You should have consistency in the expectations you set for out onboarding, in the outcomes that they should be looking for. But how they get there, the things that they design, the things that they build, they run their business their way. They run their CS program their way. You should give them the tools and the coaching and say, look, I've seen this work well, I've seen this not work well, but you need to let them be creative. NPS I Love You is a weekly customer success podcast for people who know that CS is about more than just churn and upsells. It's about people. I'm your host, Ben Wynn, and my goal with this show is to give you powerful insights that'll improve your life and the lives of your customers. This is the first ever in-person, actually that's a lie, it's the second in-person podcast, but the first one in the Catalyst office. Nice. So excited that it's you. Yeah, I'm excited to, a little nervous, but excited to be part of it. Excellent. Well, I always say I'm a little nervous for everything. That's just the thing that I tend to do. I mean, I always say like nerves are, everything worth doing has nerves because nerves just mean you're excited. They're not a bad emotion. They're a good emotion because it means that you're excited about what you're doing. It means you're invested in the outcome too. And you're invested in the outcome. That's more customer success than my version. <laughs> not intentionally either. I think that just, just the word outcome. And I'm like, man, I'm like <laughs> business outcomes and results. Yeah, exactly. What's your OKR for this podcast? Oh, please don't. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could, that was your old life. <laughs> that was my old life. I totally could make, well, what is my, okay. Well, my, my objective, and this is a little selfish is to, is to not sound like a complete idiot. <laughs> my, That's a good objective. My key results, I think, are to, to speak clearly and to not cough all the time because when I run, I, I cough and to have things to say that are, that are worth hearing and I think will be useful for people. I mean, that's what the editing's for, but cool. Know. We'll talk for like three hours and we'll add it down to like the best 27 minutes. That's perfect. Excellent. That sounds like a lot of work for you. So I don't end it's your not job. Me. I mean, I, we have editors now, so nice. <laughs> Otherwise the podcast would be absolutely terrible. <laughs> All right. Well, we've got multitude of stuff to cover, but we should start with who you are because okay. I haven't done that. So let's have you do a quick intro of yourself. Sure. So my name is Kyle Clark and I manage the implementation team here at Catalyst. Excellent. And you are into cars. I'm very into cars. Have you ever worked with cars? Actually, yes. So uh, a couple times. I mean, you're saying it's professionally, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're just like unprofessionally, like running up to people's cars, like changing the oil <laughs> yes. and running away. <laughs> Every time somebody's on the side of the road, how can I help? <laughs> I got jumper cables in the back. It's like, yeah, it's a flat tire. Put the jumper cables on the flat tire. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We'll see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, so I interned in college at Enterprise Rent-A-Car, which means that the majority of the work that I did was selling rental insurance to people who didn't need it, which, okay. you Felt know, great. It was like completely fulfilling. <laughs> yeah, so. it was, um, you know, built character. Yeah. But there was, there actually was a, a side project that we did, which maybe when I think about it is how I learned that I liked or had an affinity for project management or team mm-hmm. leadership because... We, we had a really open remit, which was to create a, it said create a marketing plan that will increase revenue for enterprise rent a car. Super broad. And everybody in our team came forward with our ideas and discussed them. I tried to kind of persuade people around my idea. They rallied and I ended up leading the project around it. And we won this competition. It was a competition among all the Southern California region enterprise intern groups. So there was, I think, eight or nine or maybe 10 groups. And considering how much they were paying us, it essentially doubled our payout for the internship period. Nice. Hey, <laughs> you know, that's right. You know, which wasn't altogether a ton of money, but it was it was the first time I ever like took ownership of and led and like succeed. It, it was probably the first time where I'm like, wow, if I really try to apply to something in in a real world context, I can be successful. That was a huge. When I think about it, it's kind of a huge moment. But I guess you were asking me when I've worked with cars. So I sold rental insurance, yes. technically speaking, and then my first job that I was part-time and then moved immediately full-time when I graduated college was at Shift, which is Ben Lee worked at Shift with oh, me. Awesome. And that's why he that's why he's not here. 
Yes, he likes to join in the suffering with me. Um, <laughs> and, and for context, Ben Lee is our manager of customer experience. Yeah, he's the okay. CX program manager, customer CX experience program, program manager. And so, yeah, Ben Lee is the customer experience program manager. And him and I worked together at Shift where he was initially on the sales side. And what we would do at Shift is we would find people. We would have them enter information about the car. We'd send them basic pricing. Mm-hmm. Then somebody on my team called car concierge would go provide a final analysis of the car, an eval we'd call it, and then offer firmer pricing. Okay. Firm pricing actually. And then we'd bring the car in if they agreed to that pricing structure. We'd do a full evaluation of the vehicle, like a technical look under the hood, check everything. And then we would finalize their price, deducting any repairs that we did that we deem necessary. Then Ben Lee and his team, the uh, the car enthusiasts they were called, would actually sell the cars. So yes, I've worked with cars and I thought I wanted to that's what I thought I wanted my career to be. It was advertising for cars. So that's why I took oh, marketing. And then how'd you end up here then? You just um, fail, failed miserably. So you're like, yes, I'll, I'll go over to Catalyst. And- failure after failure. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I think I just ended up in tech. I mean, I, I graduated. I was in San Francisco. And one of the people whose cars that I helped evaluate and sell turned out to be someone I still talk to. Amazing person. Really, really thoughtful, intelligent guy. Essentially, he was the founding general partner of a very popular venture capital firm. So Emergence oh, Capital, awesome. Jason Green, the founding the founding partner, uh, one of the founding partners. I was super lucky to meet him. I just, he happened to have a car that was... So the way that you provide pricing for things like cars and houses is you have to have comps. You have to have comparable things in the region. Essentially, stuff that's similar to this in, in a place that's mm-hmm. similar. So his car didn't have a lot of comps. It was an Audi. It was a really nice Audi. It was a rare Audi. And, uh, you know, the pricing structures that we had, we had three different ones. And I was like, look, based on this car and how rare it is, I'm not getting a lot of real-time data on this. Let me go back to the office. This was when I initially did his eval. I first met him. I didn't really know anything about the tech world so much. Didn't know anything about emergence or or venture capital. But I went back to the office and I prepared three different pricing structures. I put them all in an email and kind of detailed out. Like, here's your spreadsheet. Here's your different expected payouts. If you're risk averse, go this way. If you're kind of in the middle, go this way. And if you're, you know, if you're risk favoring, go this way. Let me know what you what you come up with. And when we went to sign the final paperwork, I started to kind of put together that, you know, his license plate and the name of the company, which was on the building, <laughs> were the same thing. And I was like, maybe this guy's kind of important. And fortunately enough for me, I, you know, he just said, look, if you're ever interested in doing something else, let me know. I know a lot of companies. And I was like, wow, thank you very much. A couple of months later, I called him back and uh, he provided me a lot of feedback on my resume, how I should present myself nice. and said, yeah, this, he's That's Jason awesome. Green, like, cannot say enough about the guy. Like he's, he's the reason I'm in tech. He's the reason I've had, he's a huge part of the reason I've had the amount of success that I have in my life since that point. So that's really owe a lot to him. But essentially he, he helped me secure an inter, an initial interview at a couple different places that he'd interviewed at. One of which was BetterWorks where I ended up working nice. uh, for two and a half years. And I worked there with Gloria and that was my first foray into tech. Nice. That's a really cool way in. It it's was probably really one crazy. of the cooler ways in that it's like, yeah, I really like that. It's like getting struck by lightning. Yeah, pretty much. But I love those <laughs> fortuitous things. And it's it's funny. There's a really quick story I'll share. But one of my partner and I's mentors, uh, she passed away recently, but she um, was this like fashion icon. And she got her start basically like after the Holocaust, she was in Auschwitz. She moved, came over. She was working in uh, Eaton's, which is a, was a famous department store in Montreal. And um, she was working at the jewelry counter. She had no money. This was like her first job. And a guy walks up and he wanted to buy an anniversary gift for his wife. And she was like, to be honest, like the stuff here is crap. Like you should go over to this store, ask for this girl, look for this particular earring. Your wife is going to love it. 
And turns out the guy was Jack Eaton, who like owned the whole thing. And so the next day she got called up to his office and thought she was going to get fired, but he made her the buyer for the department. And so then she, that like started her and she ended up being like one of the first people to sell Versace and Galliano and all these major designers in North America. And she's just like legend. So it's really crazy. So I love stories like that where it's just like, I don't know, like it's, it's something about being open to like new experiences and, and treating everyone really well. And in her case, just being brutally honest, but you know, or for you, it's just giving that level of customer experience and caring at a job that maybe you weren't like crazy about at the time, but you just did it because it was how you chose like work ethic and it takes, shows your approach to work. Yeah. I mean, that's a complimentary way to put it. I appreciate it. You know, um, appreciate you putting it that way. I think I ended up in sales, not so much. I, I didn't really want to end up in sales, but I kind of, I kind of gravitated to it. I think naturally because because of just, I think, a people personally part of me. But yeah, I think I think my approach was always provide more information, be more of an expert in the thing that they're mm-hmm. interested in so that you can actually consult them on what they want. And I think that's what kind of naturally led me into customer success and implementation. Originally, I wanted to be a solutions engineer, but it's a similar thing. You know, you kind of have to be the expert in the product and the thing that they're showing interest in. Mm-hmm. For cars, it's easy. I always help my friends look for cars whenever anybody's got a question about it. It's like, yeah, you know, what are you looking for? What are your criteria? And then let me talk you through some options. You know what I mean? And, you know, there's always a little bit of like, well, they say, I want these things. Yeah, and then, and then they, they want, yeah. yeah. And then, they, and it, well, but not only that, they like, I want to love it. It's like, what, what ends up coming right. out? It's like, yeah, you know, I want good fuel economy. You yeah. know, I want these number of doors. And I'm like, okay, here's this car. It's like, yeah, that's kind of boring. I'm like, okay, so you want to love it too. Yeah. Don't you? You know, yeah. there's like, you want a Trans Am. You want <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, but yeah, that's how I ended up in tech. Nice. I promised we're going to get to onboarding, but the other question I wanted to ask you. So for context, we recently all went through a public speaking training thing. I think of you as like a very outgoing, strong speaker. Like you need these onboardings. That's that's what you do. Yeah. Like it was something even coming on the podcast was a bit of a like putting yourself out there, like something you were a little nervous about. So I'm curious, those two things don't quite add up in my mind. Do you not think of yourself as like a public speaker? I guess it depends. There's always been like a natural tension in me between being, there's no other word for it, insecure and wanting to be very outgoing and to be out there and to communicate in ways that are compelling because I see people and I think I, I came from people who can communicate in a very compelling, interesting way in, in, in like a way that'll really grip you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? And I, I've always really looked up to characters in movies and people in real life who can, as they speak and as they, and as they interact and just you know, grab you. I've always loved that. And I've always wanted to be that person. And I I think part of me just naturally or subconsciously tries to strive for that. But for most of my life, I've also had a lot of difficulty being in that position because there's a, there's a vulnerability to it. And I think just everybody has, you know, everybody struggles to, to, to feel fully comfortable in their skin. You know I mean? It's always a bit of like a, a battle, right? Like, you know, you reach different summits and peaks on, you know, throughout your life. And I'm probably at a, a decent one now, but yeah, there's always been a bit of battle between those two things. So maybe it doesn't add up, but that's because it's, it's kind of an ongoing push and pull. Oh, it makes sense. I think it's a good point. It's always challenging, but I think it's really cool that you wanted to do this and, and that you wanted to put yourself out there, even though it's, and you had no idea what I was going to ask you. And uh, <laughs> I do want to ask you about onboarding because we've heard our customers say nothing but glowing things about onboarding here. So what is it that make that you think makes the onboarding that you created here so effective or special or unique? I think like all things that you spend a lot of time working on, it's part preparation and past experience. It's part 
having a million different goals and, and, and having some sort of through line that they connect with to get to the end goal that you're at. So it, it's not sort of like I had this beautiful vision on day one and I executed it. It's more a lot of things have happened over time and I've had experiences in the past that I think have allowed me to see through the, you know, the upgrades that I've made to the, I want to call them upgrades, the changes that I've made to the implementation process or so the shape that I've put on it. You can call them upgrades. I feel like everyone here would call them upgrades. I mean, I we had stuff in place and I had, you know, I had past experiences and I had, you know, experiences in Catalyst and I thought, okay, what, what are the ways that we can continue to fine tune this? So I think just to start from the beginning, you know, when I was at BetterWorks, the software that we provided was user-facing. Uh, you know, in, in a way, very similar in the fact that it was kind of workflow and productivity software, but focused on performance management and OKRs, which for a lot of people is a, you know, not, not a super intuitive concept. Mm-hmm. But there were two main things you really had to focus on in the success of implementation with Batterworks. The first is, do people understand and have a decent program to run OKRs and performance management in? If you don't have that, then it doesn't matter to have software. Right. You can run a decent OKRs program on spreadsheets. Mm-hmm. You can run a shitty OKRs program on spreadsheets. Many people do. <laughs> but you can also, you, you can't run an excellent OKRs program just by buying the software. So you need to have a little bit of both. It needs to be change management, education, it needs to be a, a good product as well to support the process. So I had a bit of background around that. And then I had my following experience at Pymetrics where I was doing enterprise implementations, working with much larger companies, much more complex project management-driven implementations, not a lot of user education, change management that I own. It was more so coordinating resources over a longer period of time for more complex outcomes, a lot of schedule management. And I think being able to bounce through both of those things, because those are both implementation management and they're both different flavors of it, gave me a bigger perspective on, you know, what are the things that Catalyst needs from the project management side and what does it need on the change management and program building side? So, when I entered Catalyst, I mean, the first things that I was thinking about are for every meeting that we have, what is the purpose and, you know, and desired outcome mm-hmm. for each meeting that we have? What is the each overarching meeting we have goal? With customers or internally? With customers. Yeah. And overall, there were, there were X number of meetings, and I think there's only like one or two more now, but there, there wasn't a clear, like, each of these things you will accomplish X, Y, or Z. Okay, gotcha. And I understand why that was the case, but that was kind of one of the first things that came to mind is, you know, OKRs. Every objective has key results. So if each meeting is an objective, what are the key results that know that we've achieved that meeting? That was now that I'm doing a bit of, you know, retro on, I think that was kind of my framing is what, what is the intended goal to drive the ball forward in each meeting? So I took that perspective. And then the other part of it too, was like, how are we deciding what the timeline is? Like, how long should this take? When should these things be happening? And what are the expectations from a, this is due then standpoint? And that came, I think, from my project management coaching. So I think part of it was just sort of that preparation. And then as I got into and started, you know, really working with the um, with the onboardings that we had, one of the first things I put into place was an onboarding survey because you can't run a machine and not measure what it's doing and learn how to improve the machine. So I think taking some of those focuses into mind and then just thinking, okay, so thinking about like what what is each objective for the meeting going to be? What is the right way to scale out how long this should take? What are the things that we should be asking customers to ensure that we're driving the outcomes that they want? Mm-hmm. And then I think a lot of the changes and fine tuning that went into it along the way to get to where we are here, which I would actually argue is kind of just the beginning. We now have three new team members. They're all 
really smart and really capable. We have a much bigger team. We have a lot of brains to focus on the implementation process. I think now it's going to actually going to get way better. And I think um, one of the key realizations that I had a little bit later on was we were doing a lot of building and a lot of focus on features and not as much on outcomes. And we were kind of letting the the people who bought and are designing the software determine what the fate is of the end user. Mm, okay. And that, especially with this particular type of software and user software, things that are intended to replace a huge part of someone's day-to-day of their workflow is a risky proposition. If you're not, if you're not asking the people who are going to use it, whether or not it's going to work for them, you're completely shooting in the dark. Right. So the CSM workflow deep dive, I think was one of the better changes that's happened to the implementation process is taking the focus of, okay, we know that the end user, the CSM, this is who this is built for. Because without them, without them interacting with it, we don't have anything, we don't have any data to go off of, we don't have a sustainable program or or a usable product. So that focus area, I think, has helped us start to shape the rest of what we're focusing on for for changes. Because now we're thinking about not so much what are the features you want to use, but what do you want to do with them? What's the outcome? What are the behaviors? What are the things you're trying to change? So and that's all focusing around, like ultimately at the end of the day, you're asking somebody, whatever you were doing before, whatever notes you were taking, however you're doing your shit, it's, it's done. That's done. Mm-hmm. There's a new way. It's replacing everything. So being really crisp on what are the actions we're expecting them to replace? What is the way that we can do that that will not disrupt anything that works for them and improve anything that doesn't? and being able to tie that back to what are the overarching goals for the CS team. This is a great point. So from what I understand, like one of the main switches you made was thinking of, okay, instead of teaching you, this is how to use playbooks. This is how to use, you know, this is how to, I don't know, set up this integration. This is how to do X. It was, what is the thing that you're trying to accomplish with this tool? Or what is the thing that you're doing with this other tool? Let me show you how that pattern works in Catalyst and sort of teach you what you need to know along the way. Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, we, we had multiple evolutions. Like, I think when I joined, there was a sort of, we're going to have a couple working sessions and we'll prepare for launch. And there wasn't as much structure around what that meant. Right. I was keen on being like, there needs to be an outcome. There needs to be basic minimums that say these are the exit criteria for each meeting because we need some consistency. There needs to be some perspective that we take, which is prescribing to the customer. That's another thing I forgot to mention. It's very difficult to have an implementation strategy that does not prescribe, that does not take a stance. Right. So if you have, you know, stages and meetings that are, are a little bit loose and loosely defined and says, look, we're just going to train you how to use this thing without saying, well, the right way to exit onboarding and get this in front of people is X, Y, and Z behaviors or, you know, these things activated. You're kind of in a situation where you don't have a playbook and the customer doesn't either. You can't expect them to know all the right answers. You need to help guide them. You need to yeah. be a consultant. So one of the first things I did was say, what are the exit criteria for each meeting? Then I decided, okay, this is what they are. And then over time that became, I know that in order for a CSM to use this every day, they need a home base. They need a place to access all their information to start their day. When they're getting ready for a meeting, they need guidance on how to conduct that meeting. So they need the information around the account, the contacts, and the people at that account to actually make good decisions around what's mm-hmm. happening in that meeting. And then ideally, they have a note template which says, These is the, this is the information you should be capturing on a recurring basis. Mm-hmm. These are the fields that the information, these are the fields that the business needs information in, the containers that say, hey, business, here's what's going on with this account. So the basics were you need layouts, you need dashboards, you need note templates, and then you need some basic process element stuff. The rest of it was more customers should know how to configure so that they are independent when they exit the onboarding. But the bare minimum needs to be X, Y, and Z because it needs to be in service of the team adopting. 
So that was kind of, that was one arc. And now we're moving more towards, instead of saying, this is the general like kind of standard issue, it's more, let's talk about why you're buying Catalyst, why you're buying software, why your team is experiencing pain, you want these outcomes, why are those important? You know what I mean? Every customer says, well, we want to centralize data and we want to have a better understanding of our health score. Cool. Why? Well, you know, our data is all over the place. Why is it all over the place? Oh, well, we have spreadsheets. We have Salesforce. Okay, why is that a problem? Right. You just keep digging, digging Five down. Whys. Exactly. Five whys. Five whys. You, you, you dig down until you figure out, okay, you're wasting time here. Your managers don't know what's going on because your CSMs don't know what's going on. So your CEO doesn't know what's going on. Okay. Now we know why you're buying Catalyst. Right. So let's use that understanding. Interview the CSMs about the specifics we know under that why. And then apply that with every training session. Here's the stuff that you should know how to point and click on. But in each training session, let's come to it and say, stepping back, what are the goals that we have? What are the problems we're solving? What are the things that people are doing? And we focus on that as well when we're thinking about launch and preparing people for launch. Today's show is brought to you by Catalyst Software, the fastest growing customer success platform on the market. Catalyst gives you unmatched customizability, a seamless bi-directional Salesforce integration that takes less than five minutes to set up, and a world-class customer success team that'll be by your side every step of the way. Let's be honest, whatever you're currently using might be good enough, but is good enough really what you're aiming for? Take your CS team to the next level by switching to Catalyst today. To learn more, visit Catalyst.io. And if you aren't looking for a CS platform right now, you should subscribe to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn anyways. I make daily memes, we host all sorts of events, and we love to give away our swag, which has been called the comfiest swag in the industry. Again, check out Catalyst.io to learn more. What do you do when you come up against someone who likes their Google Sheets? Who likes, I mean, has this happened where you're like, I don't want to use Catalyst. I, I like keeping, I do hand, handwritten notes. Can you give me one of those digital things that turns my handwritten notes into a note? I don't know. I haven't bought one of those. They're, I think, they I seem think ridiculous to me, but I think they're really cool. I don't know why I do, but I think they're really cool. The um, things that transcribe your notes to the, to like your computer. Yeah, Have you ever cool. used one? No, but it seems cool. It's too, it's too expensive. It's gimmicky. It's gimmicky, but there is a certain like freedom in just this. You know yes. what I mean? Like a text editor has line breaks and stuff. The question was, what do you do as somebody who actually really likes the way that they stand it? You know, that, yeah, as terrible as it work. might be, but yeah. there are people like that. So we won't be naming them. <laughs> <laughs> That's a change management basic is there are always going to be people who are resistant to what you're trying to change in, in the way that they do their thing. Even if they actually are on the surface saying, yeah, I'm really interested in that. Getting into the habit of doing something different, even if they think it's better, is difficult. So there's a number of ways that you prepare for that. The first is to make sure that you have the right understanding of what their problems are and you have the right people above them and the right people involved in your implementation team to engage the engage the people who are going to be asked to change their behavior in the right way. So the most basic thing is, do we have executive sponsors? Do we have program leads? Do we have some people in the CS team who can be part of the implementation effort? Because right. if you have somebody at the level of the person who's having to deal with the change, you have a person above them and then a senior leader all shouting the same message. Right. You have the CSM, you have a peer CSM, you have their manager and you have the head of the department. Mm -hmm. They're all saying, this is going to solve a pain that this CSM who's resistant to change is interested in solving. If they're all parroting that message from the beginning and they're all understanding correctly the needs of that person, then we'll be designing Catalyst and the training and change management material 
in a way that will better hook that person in. So by the time that you get to launch, if everybody is communicating effectively, understands the needs effectively, and presents the solution in a way that does address to that person the needs that they have, then they're it, it's not going to be so much I'm, I'm resistant to get rid of my, my, my pen and pad. It's going to be like, well, I don't see the reason to use the pen and pad now because everyone around me is supporting an effort. I understand the reasons why I should be part of it. It makes sense to me. I can see the benefit for myself. You have to, you have to connect with the person. You have to connect with what they want at yeah. the end of the day and to, to get to connect to somebody in the way that they want to persuade them in a way that they want. You need to have either a close relationship with them. You need to, you need to know who they are or you need to have access to people who will influence them. People at their level, people mm-hmm. above their level who are all speaking a cohesive message that internal that they can internalize uh, effectively. Yeah, sometimes it's hard to figure out what people really want, but it's one of the fun sort of challenges is guessing or trial and error, right? I used to be in health tech, right? So I'd be in hospitals trying to convince them not to use like fax machines for things and being like, hey, instead of doing this ridiculous thing from the 70s, like try this. And they're like, no, but I like the ridiculous thing from the 70s. And it was sometimes trial and error, right? It was like, okay, I can appeal to, you know, the efficiency argument, I can appeal to the, you know, the problem solving argument. And for some people, it came down to like, if their boss tells them to do it, then they'll do it. Right. And I always hated that because I'm like, but that's the worst reason to do something like someone told me to. But I agree with you, like the best thing is if you can figure out what it is they really want, and then align the incentives properly so that in order to achieve what they want faster or better or like that, you can properly position whatever the action is you're asking them to take sort of along that path. Yeah, exactly. Make it the catalyst for their... Uh, Make it the catalyst for change for, for their, Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, do that all the time. Never gets old, except after the first time. Does it, does it ever get into the podcast? No, I usually edit that out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's probably like a variety of people in any CS team, especially the larger that they get, that have all... Each of them yeah, needs what a are, specific thing. What are the thing. personas? Because I used to categorize all the health tech people. Like, I could very easily... <laughs> Even now, like go into a surgical, like a heart surgery department at a hospital and within five minutes categorize everyone. Or I'm like, oh, these people are like that group and this people, these people are like this. And like, you know what I mean? Does that exist for CS teams? You go in and you're like, oh, this is that kind of role. This is this kind of person. This is this kind of group. Kind of. There's a lot of sim- similarity around people who work in CS. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they all tend to be empathetic. They all tend to be personable and they all tend to be a little more humble. Mm-hmm. Let's see. What are, what what are some of the personas that I've that I've picked up? There is the highly organized, builds all their own tools type mm-hmm. CSM. This person generally has a structure for note taking mm-hmm. and a spreadsheet on their customers that they're that they designed themselves. That yes. they're very very you know very very into. Yep. There are kind of the more chaotic CSMs who just like everything is a giant inbox, and yep. then they have like they may have stickies and they may have like Apple notes and actual stickies on their, on their wall. Yeah. This is me. Yeah. I'm, I'm more of the, like I build my own tools and I try to be super planned out. Yep. Neither is more effective than the other. You know what I mean? There, there are different ways of processing huge mountains of information and being able to synthesize that down to a 30 or 30 minute or one hour meeting with the person that has impact and then follow up and repeat back to them, let them know what happened. That's the, this is the interesting thing, right? Is that like people can work completely different ways and achieve the same outcomes. Yeah. But how do you do that at scale, right? Like if someone I mean, I guess that's one of the reasons why it's like, oh, Catalyst is customizable, blah, 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 like all that good. You know, there's a reason people buy Catalyst. But I mean, I think of the way that 
I, I worked in my previous CSM roles, and it was completely different than the way that the other CSMs I worked with worked. I think you have to provide you have to provide a useful framework for people to operate in. And I think if you want to if you want to scale people who work differently effectively, really you need to think about what are they going to be measured on. How do we know if they're successful? Mm-hmm. So you know, for CSMs, it's it's usually fairly straightforward. It's churn, net dollar retention can be NPS, although the people have varying opinions on how useful that, that, that metric is. Yep. So the way that they get from A to Z, whatever that goal is, is kind of up to them. Provide them tools, provide them frameworks, and provide them consistent measures of outcomes. Mm-hmm. And say, if you want to use Catalyst this way, mm-hmm. great. If you want to build your own layouts, if you want to build your own note templates, mm-hmm. you know, if you want to organize your life your way that you need to, that's okay. At the end of the day, we all need to come to an agreement on one thing. We have to retain X number of clients. You have to, your NDR number is this for the, for, for the quarter. So I think, I think in a way it's almost like, it's almost like you're not, you're not scaling a machine, right? You're not adding like parts to a greater machine. Here we go to the car analogies here. Great. Right? I was going to say, I haven't brought up any yet. So I'm glad you're, it's <laughs> organic segues. Those are my favorite. Yeah. It's, it, it's not like, it's not like an assembly line where you're building more of the same car. It's sort of like you're letting more mechanic shops build more cars from the same assortment of parts mm-hmm. and from the same vendors of parts. Yeah. And yeah, and, you know, the end result is, you know, you have a, you know, you have an entire team of, of racing cars. They, they all may not look the same. They may not have the same engines. They may have the same specifications, but they all need to do the same thing. They need to cross the finish line at the same time. They all need to be within some similar shape and form. They have to say, have the same colors and yep. livery. So there's a way to organize the chaos, let things be a little chaotic, but make sure that there's enough structure and enough consistency of outcomes that everyone's expected to to be driven to, that would, I think, tend to tend to scale effectively. Nice. And I imagine having that approach makes it easier, even as an onboarding manager, almost like we're from an onboarding perspective in that I imagine there's a lot of pressure to sort of get everyone on the exact same track when you're onboarding. And sort of a lot of companies have that expectation of, well, this is how to use our product. So we want to see people doing this number of actions in this amount of time, and they should be using it this way. Versus like if you give yourself and if your company supports you and giving yourself that room to say what matters is these three things. So as long as we have these three things, we're good. They're good. We're happy. They're happy. Yeah. I mean, one of the things I learned at BetterWorks is that we had a lot of, we had strong opinions on the way that you should run OKRs and the way that you should run them through our program Mm -hmm. and and through our platform. But my my strong opinion is that you shouldn't run them at all. (laughs) 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 But we can do that on a different podcast. (laughs) I mean, you know, I I haven't been the greatest advocate for them since I got busy either. So, you know, the thing is, at the end of the day, um, what are the outcomes that you want from the customer? Is it that you want them to do everything exactly the same? Okay. Why? What's the justification for that? If you can't find a very good one, or if you find that you're forcing people into this machine and it's a bit of effort to do so, maybe it's not the best approach. Like, yes, you should have consistency in the expectations you set for out onboarding, in the outcomes that they should be looking for. Their goals are going to have some similarities across customers, but how they get there, the things that they design, the things that they build. If you enforce too much structure around that, you're artificially constraining the things that they need. They run their business their way. They run their CS program their way. So you should give them the tools and the coaching and say, look, I've seen this work well. I've seen this not work well. Mm-hmm. And you should help provide reasonable boundaries, but you need to let them be creative. Yeah. Partially because that allows them to enjoy it. 
most people enjoy when you say, well, here's some, here's some general constraints, but not like you have to write a five paragraph essay, right? Like if I said, write a haiku, you know, write a five paragraph essay, those are very specific ways of, of working, but the five paragraph essay sounds tedious, whereas the haiku sounds kind of cool. True. We should do like a haiku contest at Catalyst. Good. And social media. Well, can you tweet a haiku that I'm sure there's enough letters? Probably. Yeah, we'll figure that out. Um, File that away for another day. I feel like the five paragraph essay haiku metaphor wasn't great, but essentially what I was trying to, what, I, what I'm trying to get at is you do want to have consistency, but you should drive it around something important, like an outcome. Mm-hmm. Like, are they okay? We we want we want consistency of certain things that they learn. It's not consistency for consistency's sake. Right. It's consistency around specific things that there's a underlying reason that you have explored and established. Right. This is not as serious as designing an aircraft, right? Like if yeah. there if there are differences and greater tolerances for how a thing is tuned mm-hmm. in a catalyst system, no problem. In an airplane, huge problem, people die, right? Like yeah. but that's we're not flying planes, we're not building planes, there's not a there's not a huge safety risk. It's about are they going to have a system that their team loves and wants to use? And as an emergent property of their team loving it and wanting to use it, are they going to have better data to make decisions as a business? Yeah. If that's the overarching goal and theme, you actually have a lot of creativity to play around in within that. And I think that's kind of the thing that we try to keep in mind. I love that. That's awesome. We finally got there. I know we got that. No, hey, there are lots of great points throughout there. Uh, no, that's awesome. Are there any other things you've seen when you've either spoken with or, or interacted with other companies where their errors with onboarding or their mistakes that you think are pretty common that you might be able to save some people from making? This is maybe a hot take, but there's a huge amount of focus on getting up and running very, very quickly. And there's mm. a there's a lot of good reason behind that because if people lag and people drag, then they start to lose the momentum and the interest. And that, yeah. that that's a big problem. But there's, I think, in response to sort of over-indexing for everything's got to be done in 30 days. And I just... I don't see the value in ascribing in, you know, an, an, an arbitrary number of days or minutes or hours to doing a certain thing. You should have a, a different perspective, which is what is it going to take for you to be healthily, steadily using the system? That's what drives the catalyst onboarding process. How can we ensure that a customer will be in a place where they'll be healthy, aka using catalyst and happy with it as soon as possible? Generally, this happens in around that 30-day mark. Mm-hmm. That's the nature of our software. Other people may find different times or, or ranges that make sense to them, but you should lead first with the outcome that you want and then use your relationship with the customer to ensure that you're driving momentum forward. I love that because literally before we started recording, you were telling me about a customer that you might be even going too quickly. And a lot of people who are onboarding customers might be like, oh, this is going to look great to my boss or to the company because I onboarded this client in this really short amount of time, like aren't I amazing? But your concern is actually that they, you know, you're looking at the big picture and the long term, like I'm worried that they're going too quickly. I want to make sure that they go really smoothly and that they're set up for long-term success. So I love that mentality. I think it's critical. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, we should push people to get as, to get up and running as fast as they can in a way that allows them to launch in a healthy state. Now, that doesn't mean launch with everything that they have possibly could ever imagine in the platform turned on. Sure. And that can be how you sort of fine tune. And like, I think, I think you just, you, you leave with the outcome in mind. You're like, all right, I want, I want everyone to use this platform. I want them to, to get value. I want them to get the right amount of value quickly. What are the things that they absolutely need to be sustainable and to be stable after they launch? Okay, it's X, Y, and Z. About how long does it take for us to get those things up and running? Okay, this number of days. 
Now you found the day amount or like the, the right amount of time. And internally, you can try to walk that back through efficiencies in process and efficiencies in content and collateral and better enabling the customer to self-serve. But first, I think you should think about what is the way to 80, 90% of the time, because 100%, let's be real, doesn't happen. Bring a customer up and running where the outcomes that you want from the product, a healthy customer, are achieved almost every single time. Okay, how long did that take? Cool. Right. Now try to draw that number back. Don't just say 30 days, 60 days, because that's what our competitors are doing. Fuck what your competitors are doing. You yeah. don't want to get into a war of attrition with them. You want to be able to separate from them. And that takes a perspective of, we want you to be successful, not we want to be faster than the other guy. That's focusing on competitor, not your customer. You need to focus on your customer. Very cool. Uh, lots of fantastic advice. We've covered a lot. We didn't talk about cars at pretty much at all. Only your, your opening thing about selling insurance to enterprise, which isn't the most exciting. Um, you're a member of the classic car club in Manhattan. I know that. Oh dear. Yes. <laughs> so what are you taking me on this Ferrari trip? What's the next car? What's your dream car that they have that you want to take out for a spin? Ooh, most of them, which is why <laughs> many of them, which is why I had that membership. But, um, the, uh, there's a couple Ferraris. There's an older one and a newer one. Do they have um, one from Ferris Bueller? I don't know. I don't remember. Maybe it which exact was. version that was. No. Well, I don't remember that. You've seen the movie, right? I did, but like I don't remember it because it was once. It was a long time ago. What? It's yeah, the best movie. Got to rewatch it. I know. I should. <laughs> I think the car I'm most excited about taking out next is a 1991 Acura NSX. It's not a super popular car, but in the, in the 90s, I think my brother-in-law has that. No. I'm looking it up right now. Uh, the NSX is it is a crazy sport. Yeah, that thing is insane. Look at that. It's a mid-engine, rear-wheel drive. One of the most decorated Formula One drivers of all time helped Honda engineer the vehicle. It's not the fastest car, but it's a very special car. So I, that, that car I grew up always kind of revering. Awesome. Kyle, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'm really glad you came on. Me too. I hope I hope there was something of use in there. <laughs> there was plenty. Awesome. Cool. Thanks, Ben. If you enjoyed today's show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. It's great for my self-esteem. Thanks for joining us. And if you'd like to learn more about Catalyst, visit catalyst.io. P.S. I love you.